0: we say that every week, thanks be to God. Um, and perhaps we do say it out of habit at times, but I, I, I do want to just say to you, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have not left us in ignorance. We are thankful that you have, you have written your law, your commandments, your, your gospel, your story, that you have inspired it and you have given it to us. And, and Lord, every week, When we open that word, um, we are indeed on holy ground, I pray that we would feel that. Lord, as we turn our attention to hope, I pray that wherever we are, you would speak hope into our lives. Every single person that you have brought to church this morning is here because they do need hope, even if they don't. See it or recognize it. All of us are desperate for hope. And so I pray that you would feed your people through your word with hope. Uh, bless me, Lord. and give me, to, give me the strength to preach as a man offering hope to a world desperate to find it. We trust you with all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. This Advent season, we are going to meditate on the four themes of Advent. Uh, by the way, Mark already mentioned it, but right alongside each of these sermons, I've put together just a little devotional material for um, you, you, your families, your roommates, um, friends, and there are paper copies. Uh, there are paper copies in the Narthex. There are paper copies in the Narthex, for, if, you want, if you want to grab that. Uh, but also uh, just on the front page of our website uh, each each Sunday it'll it'll post. It's not a daily devotion thing. It's a uh, it's meant to be the conclusion of each Sunday of Advent. So I'm preaching on hope this morning, and then there's a there's a little uh, liturgy and lesson and and, and whatnot um, on hope before you go to bed tonight. Um, and so every every time I, I preach um, during this Advent series, th- that's there. So grab that and use it, or just go online and and uh, look at it. But Anyway, um, we're going to meditate on these four themes of Advent um, and we're calling it the four longings of the soul. Uh, Contrary to uh, our culture's reductionist view of humanity, we are much more than bodies. Uh, We are an inextricable union of body and soul. And in the same way that your body hungers, your soul hungers. But what is what is food for the soul, so to speak? We, it's obvious what food is, what nourishment is for our bodies. What is the nourishment for the soul? Well, when you trace the themes of Scripture, there are four things that, that emerge as essential to the human heart. Hope, joy, love, and peace. And this is why these are chosen as the themes of the Advent season. Advent is a season of longing. It is a time of hunger. A season where we pay special attention to the soul cry, to the, to the hunger pains of our soul for hope, joy, love, and peace. And then, of course, this hungry season gives way to the feast of Christmas, which we believe is the satisfaction to all four of these. What did Jesus ultimately come to bring? The fullness of hope, joy, love, and peace. And so this Advent we are going to follow those themes together and essentially get to know both our hunger for them and why the birth of Jesus is the answer to them. And today we begin with hope. Now, what makes hope uh, unique is that it might be the only one of the four that I have to convince you, you absolutely have to have, that it is absolutely essential to the soul. I think we know, we intuit how important joy, love, and peace are, but is is hope necessary? Or I should maybe ask in our day, is hope even a good thing? Because It is becoming increasingly popular in our secularized society to actually believe that the notion of hope is a bad thing, that we should all resist. Secular psychologist and philosopher Robert Provine put it like this He says, This is all there is. The sooner we accept this dangerous idea, the sooner we can get on with the essential task of making the most of the here and now. Do you understand his reasoning? The secular worldview tells you that the most hopeful thing that you could do is give up on the notion of hope altogether. Free yourself from these vain imaginations that things will get better in the end and certainly the the silly imagination that there is somehow going to be a heavenly existence in the end. Free yourself from all this and just accept the cold, hard reality that this is all there is. We are not promised that things are going to get better, so let's just, let's just make this as good as it can be. Make the best of things, so to speak. And to be honest, if hope goes unanswered, if hope truly is not a thing and is just this vain imagination of ours, then they have a point, we waste our lives clinging to hope if hope is in vain. So let's just give up on it and make the best of things while we're here. That very dilemma, the the, 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 the secular dilemma of giving up hope and, and the religious dilemma of holding on to hope, this is the central focus of Stephen King's uh, short novel that, that, uh, you would probably more famously know by its film adaptation, The Shawshank Redemption. Um, incredible movie. I, I'm sure most everybody here has seen it or knows of it, but I'll still go ahead and give a disclaimer. It's an amazing movie, but, but certainly the movie at, at times is very graphic and gritty. But the story takes place in a Shawshank Prison, an old, concrete, dreary, maximum security prison for the worst of the worst criminals, a hopeless place. There are two main characters in the story, Red and Andy. Red is the old seasoned veteran of Shawshank who has spent almost his whole life there. And Andy is the new arrival into Shawshank, um, wrongly accused of murder, who disrupts the culture of the prison because he refuses to give in to the pervasive hopelessness Of the place that is embodied in Red's character. Red represents the secular mindset I was talking about. He has come to grips with his sentence. He has accepted that Shawshank is his home. This prison is all he will ever know. And he believes this is just how things are going to be. And sooner everyone comes to grip with this. And lays down their fantasies of freedom the better. But then there's Andy. Who refuses to give up hope of freedom, even though he has a life sentence on his hands. And so these two characters become best friends, and in this way, those two competing perspectives on hope are front and center in the very tension of King's story. And there's one conversation in particular that really gets at this contrast. Andy is talking about music, and how beautiful it is, and how important it is in prison. He says to Red. See, this is the beauty of music. That's something they can't take from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? And Red cynically said, well, I played a mean harmonica when I was younger, but I've lost interest in it. It didn't make much sense here in prison. And then he says, no, here is where it makes the most sense. You need it so that you don't forget. Red says, forget what? He says, forget that there are places in this world that aren't made of stone. That there's something else out there beyond the walls of this prison. And Red said, what are you talking about? And he says, talking about hope. And then if you've seen the film, you know Red kind of gets angry at this. And he says, hope, and he sternly says, let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. You got no use for it here, and you better get used to that. Right there in that little conversation, we see the dilemma of this thing called hope. What's undeniable is that we inhabit a prison of suffering. It's undeniable. And so then we're faced with this. What are we going to do with that? Will you give up on freedom from this prison and relegate yourself to just making the best of this cruel, miserable existence? Or will you take the risk And expose yourself to the plausibility of hope and the expectation of freedom. I can tell you what the Bible unashamedly wants from you. It wants hope. Not only to not give up on hope, but to actually indulge it. To literally pour your heart, your soul, your imaginations, your destiny. To pour all of yourself out to the promise of hope. And this is what we will see this morning. Our Old Testament passage, we will see hope's conception at the very beginning. And then in our New Testament passage, we will see hope's birth. Let's start with the beginning. It's a familiar passage to many, but let me remind us what's going on. Humanity is in its first moments of sinfulness. In creation, its first moments of the fall. And in verse 17 of, of Genesis 3, we are given the details of this new reality as we now all experience it. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 3. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of what you have done, Adam, creation is now cursed. Cursed creation. And then he describes what life is like in this cursed world. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. The imagery of Is of a creation infested with thorns and thistles. And this is a wonderful way to talk about life, isn't it? Filled with pain and discomfort and toil and hardship. This is the world, we know it. And then God pronounces the ultimate price of the curse. And you will return to the ground. For you're from dust. And dust you shall return. So we suffer. And then we die. This is the plot of every story beneath the curse. This is the prison all of us now inhabit. But the question of questions is whether this is the whole story. That is to say, is that all there is? Or is there a story beyond this cursed story? Well, immediately into the bleakness of the fall A new story is introduced and hope is first conceived. The famous verse 15 that you heard. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Speaking to the serpent, to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Hope's conception is found in the promise of a literal conception, of a seed. A seed of the woman. That though he would receive a blow to his heel, would deliver the decisive blow to Satan's head, meaning the seed will suffer, but evil will die. That's the good news. The difficult news is that God doesn't tell us when it will happen here. He doesn't tell Adam and Eve when this will come. In fact, he promises a tenuous journey of enmity as they all await the fulfillment of hope. And so Genesis 3 introduces two stories. The story of the way things are, which we are very familiar with, and the story of hope. The story of hope that things will be different. And thus begins the journey of holy unrest, a discontentment with this story, and a longing for the promised story. And as you continue on in the Old Testament, that's the tension, and it's never lost, The Old Testament is very honest with the brutality of how things are in this existence. We see brokenness, we see tragedy, we see sorrow, we see a whole lot of death. But all along the terrible way, there is also an equal measure of the other story, an equal measure of promise. Through events and prophets, this promised seed of Genesis 3, the Messiah, as he has come to know, is kept in the forefront. And thus, God's people wait. The long journey of hope for the Lord to fulfill his promise. And in many ways, this dilemma is the dilemma of the Old Testament. The dilemma of hope. Will they hold on? Will they endure? Will they believe? Or will they give in to the way things are? Will God fulfill? Will promise ever arrive? Is our hope in vain? And for generation after generation after generation, this question, that question, looms as promise continues to seemingly go unmet, seemingly mocking humanity's hope. Until one generation, One ostensibly random generation, out of nowhere, hope arrives. We've seen hope's conception. Let's turn to Matthew and see hope's birth. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Christ properly translated as a Messiah, or you could even say Jesus the seed, the promised one. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Joseph is told that what is conceived in Mary is from God, the Holy Spirit, which is enormous. The Bible is filled with miraculous conceptions, but none like this, none virgin. Conception is obviously the union of two. Such that what is conceived is not half one party, half the other. It is the synthesis. It's, a, it's the fusion of the two such that what is conceived is the fullest expression of both. And so this child, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary as the creed states, is therefore both fully God and fully human. And what this means is that in this child, the two competing stories of Genesis 3, the story of humanity's fall and the story of God's promise have come together as one. This is hope entering our prison. Real hope, tangible, touchable hope. Not a prophetic word of promise, but quite literally word made flesh. No longer is hope, this ethereal idea that we have to trust in, it is a full and physical embodiment. No longer a concept, but a literal conception. Simply put, the seed of promise has become the literal seed of this woman. And then, when we look upon the life of this child, when we discover what he is all about and who this person is in the gospel, what we see is that he is is indeed an invasion, an infusion of hope into our fallen existence. Lepers are cleansed, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the shameful are accepted, the sinful are forgiven, even the dead are raised. This, this is what creation has been groaning for. Not hope promised, but hope realized. But the dilemma with Jesus is that it seems to be only a glimpse. Like a teaser of hope, you know? Of how good it could be if God actually did fulfill his promises. As incredible as the life of Jesus is, the promise is much more of a... It seems that um, the promise is just a first century flicker of hope. That's not what Genesis 3 promised. Genesis 3 promised, and what has long been hoped for, is nothing short than the full and final defeat of evil under the Messiah's foot. Full and total redemption. Well, to accomplish that requires not just the arrival of the seed, but the victory of the seed. Verse 21, concluding word to Joseph. What is conceived in, your, in, your, in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, which, which means deliverer, or you could even say savior. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The issue behind all of our issues is sin. Not only is it the root cause of this cursed existence... Essentially what God said in Genesis 3 is as long as sin is in this world, this world's going to hurt. So not only is it the the foundational cause of all the misery, but more so sin is the ammunition of the evil one that Jesus must crush. We have to understand that when Satan tempted Eve, it was never about Eve or Adam or any of us. It was about God. Specifically, God's faithfulness. You see, Satan is called the great accuser because that's what he does. He can't hurt God, but he can accuse. He accuses us before God. He takes our sin and he uses it against us, holding it out before the righteousness and holiness of God, in essence, saying to God, you must punish, you must judge, you must do what's right, or you're not God. And he does so all while knowing what God really wants to do, which is not to judge, but to love his people. In fact, knowing that God has promised to do just that. And so Genesis 3 is essentially the luring of humanity into a trap to be used against God, to place God in this position where essentially he has to decide, which will it be? Justice or love? Faithfulness to your holiness or faithfulness to your promise? When it comes to sinners, you can't have both, says the accuser, Satan. To which God says, The seed will find a way. The woman will bear a son named Jesus, and he will save his people from their sin and thus crush your head. If the sin problem is defeated, the Satan problem is defeated. Now we come to the ultimate reason for his birth. He's born to die. Not just any death, but an atoning death. A death that would prove to be the death of evil. Here's how it works. So just one passage, Colossians 2. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he has nailed your sins to the cross. And then it says this. Therefore, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. That's what he's saying. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed to the cross, and in this way, the cross disarmed the serpent of his ammunition. Our accuser now has nothing to accuse us of. So that now, in Jesus, God is both just and and the justifier of sinners. I saw this beautiful piece of art this week. It was just the, the feet of Jesus on the cross and the, and the nail going through his heel and, and, and then between, and between his heel and the cross was the head of a serpent and the nail was through the head of the serpent and it just had that quote, um, you will bruise his heel but he will, he will crush your head. By disarming Satan on the cross, he has defeated Satan. And yet, as, op- as hopeful as all this sounds, this is, this is great, this is the gospel, you've heard it before. In reality, does not hope still seem incomplete? Because our story doesn't feel like hope has arrived, which is an important part to remember. The story is not over yet. In one sense, the wait is over. The Messiah has come. But in another sense, the wait has just begun. Perhaps a better way of saying that is a new type of waiting has begun. When the Bible speaks of hope, it always does so with what we call already not yet language. We have already been forgiven of our sins and yet we await the hope of complete freedom from our sins. We have, yes, already been set free from the tyranny of the devil. He has been defeated. We said that in our confession of faith. We have been set free from the dominion of the devil. And we await the final destruction of Satan and his evil forces. We have found hope, and yet we await the full and final consummation of hope. So, in other words, hope is now true for us in the gospel... But now, what we know in part, we wait to experience in full. And so, just like our ancestors before us waiting for the first advent of hope, we now wait for hope's second advent, the fullness. This is why the season of advent is so good for Christians. What we do is we relive the original wait for hope's arrival... And in this way, we train ourselves to wait well for the second arrival. We relive Israel's journey of waiting. And we assure ourselves in Christmas that Jesus fulfilled that first journey so that we now wait with assurance knowing that he will return. And that's the difference for us is that we know that since hope has come, we can be confident that hope shall return in Jesus. Hope Was proven true. We don't have to wonder anymore whether it's a vain concept that we cling to in futility. Instead, we now wait in assurance for hope to return to all of us. This is the final conclusion of Stephen King's novel. It's called Shawshank Redemption for a reason. How was the prison redeemed? If you, haven't read, if you haven't read the book or seen the film, I'm about to spoil it for you, but it's been out forever. It's your fault. So here we go. How was, how was Shawshank redeemed? Every story whispers his story, right? Ultimately, it's the story of Andy, an innocent man wrongly accused who enters into a prison of despair that he does not deserve. But he becomes a protest to its hopelessness. He befriends the hopeless, he gives them tastes of hope, and then he finally does the impossible. He breaks out of prison. This was not easy. If you're familiar with the story, he had to endure the foulness and filth of the prisoners' waste by crawling through their sewage system. Think the foulness and filth that Jesus endured. On the cross. But in the end, he breaks free. And because Andy was able to break free, hope is renewed in others, particularly his best friend, the cynical, despairing, hopeless Red. Andy always told Red that if he ever gets out on parole, to go to a spot that they had talked about and he would leave him something there. And so Andy breaks out. Red gets out on parole. He gets there, uncovers a note left to him by Andy, and this is what it says. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. There's, there's the already not yet. Um, Red knew that Andy planned, if he escaped, Andy planned to go to a little town in Mexico on the shores of the Pacific Ocean, and he wants Red to join him there. So he says, if you've come this far, maybe you'll go a little further. And the note ends with this. Remember, Red, hope. Hope is a good thing maybe the best of things. And then we see the film ends with Red, a transformed man who's used to deride the notion of hope as just a useless endeavor, riding a bus down to Mexico, head out the window, smiling with the wind in his face, and these are the last words of the film. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey. There is the nature of our wait. We are happy free men on a long journey towards the ultimate end of freedom. Free men at the start of a long journey. And this we says, I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. And those are the final words of the film. I hope. And this is what I want to be the final word of my sermon. Will you hope? What a profound question for fallen, sinful humanity that has never known anything but this imprisoned existence of suffering. Will you yet have hope? If this morning you are refusing Jesus, then with, um, with all love and with all candor, to, be, to love you and to be as honest as I can with you, um, you probably ought to give up on hope. The secularists are right. Make the best of things now because this prison of despair is as good as it gets. So you better enjoy it. Or it doesn't have to be that way. You could end your cynicism today and discover the certainty of hope ...that is found in Jesus. But to the followers of Jesus... ...I am telling you this morning... ...in the name of Jesus who has come... ...and is sure to return... ...let your hearts go. Do not... ...give up... ...on hope. Instead feast on it. Without reservation... ...or hesitation. Let your hearts go. Vulnerably expose yourself... To the plausibility dare I say certainty of hope confidently and courageously face this prison of despair your heartache your loneliness your your, your your regrets from life your sins your shames your abuse your broken relationships your your fallen circumstances that are going on right now your failing health yes even your own grave face down everything that seems hopeless and with gospel audacity declare hope is coming for you let me pray Lord fill us with hope give us assurance use now your sacrament that proclaims your return use it now to feed us to feed our souls with what we all need which is hope in Jesus name amen